Hello, and welcome to Introducing Me. I'm your host, Sarah. I started this podcast to get to know other people and lifestyles while discovering more about myself. Each episode, I will give a new guest a chance to discuss their background, culture, interests, or whatever they want to talk about to help increase all of our own worldviews. Today, I would like to introduce you to Grady Throneberry. He is the first openly gay police chief in Kentucky. He lived as a straight conservative man until 2018, but has known he was gay since childhood. So he's here to talk more about, you know, his life experiences, got some good stories to share along with what's going on now. So Grady, thank you so much for being here. Why don't you tell the audience a little bit more about yourself? Well, thanks, Sarah, for having me. Uh, yeah, and I'd love to tell the audience about about myself and my journey. I, uh, I'm uh, an older gay man, uh, came out in 2017, actually, at the end of 2017, or at least started that process of coming out. Uh, I always knew, as you said, that I was gay, knew it from the time I was an adolescent. And, uh, uh, but at that time, um, certain things were expected and certain things were not tolerated. And so it was safer for me and more comfortable for me to just live as a straight man. And so I did everything that was expected. I uh, uh, married a woman, had a couple of kids, and uh, we were married for 40 years. And she's still my best friend. Um, uh, and uh, and we, we talk a couple of times a week, usually about the kids <laughs> and uh, uh, what they're going through. Um, so uh, uh, the coming out process, uh, I can share more about that whenever you want, but um, it was grueling. Uh, it's not what I expected, um, but it's worked out well. And uh, since that time, uh, I've been very happy. There were some challenges with... Uh, uh, a church where I was serving. I was bivocational at the time. And um, there were some challenges with my, uh, with my day job as a police chief. Um, and, and those are interesting stories. Uh, but uh, I find myself now engaged to a wonderful guy and uh, uh, life has been really good for the last five years. Good. Well, it seems, you know, to hear one, just that, you know, you were married for such a long time and like, you're still on good terms. Um, that's, that's a good thing. Um, cause you never know. And as you said, like the coming out process was grueling. Um, so can you share a little bit um, about what that process was like for you coming out and like why you finally made that choice? Yeah, the, the, I had to make I had to make that decision uh, because I let me back up a minute. I had a I had a good life. Uh, I'd been fortunate enough to do all the things that I'd wanted to do in life. Uh really fortunate to have kids, but um, despite having that good life, I just never really found myself happy. Uh, I was always struggling with that and always a little bit angry. And I wasn't sure where that was coming from. Um, and it just finally struck me that I wasn't actually me and I had to do something about it uh, it was a really tough decision uh, because I, I, I have said several times that the biggest failure of my life was hurting people that I cared about and that um, that happened. I did hurt people that I cared about, 
uh, uh, and they may still be hurting some, but um, I still had to make that decision. And fortunately, they have stuck by me. Um, that process, as I said, began in the at the end of 2017. And one of the things I knew I needed was friends. Uh, I'd always had trouble having male friends because I was afraid that I would slip somehow and expose my true self, um, either through words or actions. And so I never allowed myself to get close to any other men. Uh, so when I began the process and realized that I had to come out, uh, I actually started looking at uh, uh, dating apps to try and identify people, not for dates or hookups, but to be friends, because that was the thing that I needed most. And so I did. I met a guy who was a little younger, and uh, we had a, a bit of a similar background in that he had been involved in youth ministry. And so there was a connection, and we started meeting on a regular basis for lunch or coffee, and he was kind of coaching and mentoring me. <laughs> and uh, somewhere along the way, it became more than just that. And um, it seemed to move pretty rapidly. Um, and he became very uh, frustrated with my lack of progress in the coming out process. Uh, the fact that I didn't, hadn't filed for divorce, hadn't told my employer, any of that stuff. And so he decided to take it upon himself to help me <laughs> with all of that. <clears throat> and so he launched a pretty brutal uh, social media campaign and letter writing campaign. And it didn't take long before everybody knew who and what I was. Um, he sent letters to the church where I was serving, uh, to the pastor and other leadership at that church, uh, accusing me of all kinds of sordid things, and uh, sent letters to the mayor uh, that I reported directly to, and the city council people, and uh, it was a very, very dark time as a result of that. Um, um, but it turned out much better than I expected. So, uh, uh, except for the church telling me I had to resign, uh, the rest of it's been fine. So are you still involved with a church at all? Yeah, uh, my fiance and I found a church. Uh, we were actually invited by, uh, uh, or I was invited by a wonderful couple that I actually met online, uh, a couple that's been together for 38 years. And um, they invited me to the church. And um, the first time I visited, I realized it was much different than what I'd experienced before. Uh, it was a church that was open and affirming and uh, uh, LGBTQ people serving in all kinds of roles and ministries. And uh, it's just a wonderful place. And so uh, I teach a Sunday school class there. Um, and that's probably the extent of my organized ministry activity now. But um, that didn't happen right away. That, that happened probably six or seven months after I came out. Um, after my church where I was serving told me I had to resign. I wasn't sure how I felt about church anymore. And so um, it, it took me a while to get to get to where I ultimately got. So Yeah, that's understandable. So then what was it also like 
you know, your employer finding out that you're gay and now being in that environment um, as who you are? Uh, Yeah, I uh, lead a a small uh, suburban police department. We now have, we have 25 people. We serve about 26,000 folks, but uh, my job security is entirely dependent upon the good nature and will of the mayor. Uh, I serve at the pleasure. And um, I knew that he had been contacted uh, and he had been in touch with the city attorney to decide um, how to approach this situation that he had never been in before. And um, he called and asked me if I could meet with him at my office one evening. And so I, I knew, or I thought I knew what was coming. But we met, and um, he was much more gracious and understanding than I expected. Uh, he said that my personal life was my personal life, um, that the city appreciated the job that I had done. I'd actually kind of turned the department around. It was in a shambles at one time uh, when I became the chief. And um, ultimately he said he really didn't care if I was sleeping with five different guys a week. And that was cathartic. And I just to break the tension, I said, would six be okay? And we both just had a big belly laugh and it, it was like the weight of the world was just off my shoulders at that point. And, uh, we actually have been closer since that time. Uh, probably because of me. Uh, and I say that because it, secrets, you know, you know I've, I've learned secrets will kill you from the inside out. And uh, when you're hiding something like that, it's just awful. So anyway, it's all been good since then. Yeah. You're now, still laughing what? at my question about six guys, aren't you? <laughs> just a little bit, yeah. Um, but I mean, if you were going into that meeting expecting, like, I'm about to lose my job, yes. um, to to then have that sort of response um, and, you know, that weight lifted, what has it been like um, within the community, like... Um, assuming like you're out very publicly is there animosity like towards the mayor or like keeping you employed um or anything like that no i haven't faced anything like that uh uh but i don't wear i don't wear my sexual orientation on my sleeve but i don't deny it either and uh uh I do things like I, I wear a pride watch band on my Apple watch and I don't do it to make anything of myself, but I do it because people ask about it. And I, I think that if, if someone who can be a police chief and also gay and be okay with themselves, uh, I feel like that speaks to other people who are struggling. And I've had a lot of people ask me about it. You know, they'll see the, the watch band and say, are you part of the community? And I'll say, of course, yes, I am. And, <clears throat> and so we'll have a little discussion and it's, you can almost see a light go off, uh, you know, in their minds. Uh, I haven't had any issues in the community itself. Um, at first, Sarah, I thought I was going to have a problem with the officers that worked for me. <clears throat> and there were some who were pretty contemptuous of me. Um, as you might imagine, the police department is rife with hardcore conservatives. 
and uh, and that's okay. Except that uh, they worked for me, and some of them were a little uncomfortable with that. Uh, and so I didn't have a whole lot of contact for a couple of months with with my staff, just what was absolutely needed. Um, until one afternoon, one of my officers uh, knocked on the door and asked if he could speak with me. And I said, well, of course. So he walks in. I didn't get up from behind the desk as I usually did. I usually get up and sit at a conference table with people, but I kept my distance behind my desk. And he said, uh, I know what's going on with you. And I said, okay. And he said, we all know what's going on with you. I said, okay. And he said, we all know you're gay. And none of us really care. He said, all most of us know is that you've treated us like sons and daughters, and that's what's important to us. And uh, he left the office, and I almost broke down. Uh, I thought, you know, this is finally over. And um, life kind of returned to normal. Yeah. Now, what was it like um, with your family during this process? Um, you know, you, you mentioned how the one guy you had met was like, you haven't even started the divorce proceedings. So what was that like? Well, <clears throat> my my now ex and I decided that we weren't going to do that until there was a compelling reason to. Uh, I'm, I bought a condo and moved out. Um, and the compelling reason would have been one of two things. One of us met somebody and wanted to move forward with that relationship. Uh, or if there was a financial reason to do that. Uh, and for about a year, there wasn't. There was no reason for us to, to pursue divorce. And that kind of gave her a little more time to get used to what was going on. Um, she, um, she was pretty much in disbelief about the whole thing. Uh, and to... To exemplify that, uh, one morning we were having coffee on the patio and she just looked up from a book she was reading and she said, so all these years when we would go on vacation, go to the beach, be shopping, whatever we were doing, you weren't looking at other women. I said, no, I wasn't looking at other women. And, uh, it was like, oh, well, okay. Uh, you know, that would have been hard. <laughs> this is hard, but not as hard as if you were looking at other women. So it kind of got a little better, uh, but she still hurts from it. Uh, the kids were another story. Uh, my oldest, well, they were both in disbelief uh, initially. Uh, my oldest and her children uh, totally understand, totally accepting, love my fiance. Uh, the youngest, not so much, <laughs> uh, but my friends all say she'll come around. And that's what I hope. Right. So now, how did you meet your fiance and get to the point where he is your fiance? Well, uh, he was desperate and I was desperate. No, I'm just, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we, neither of us were desperate. Uh, uh, we had served on a board together uh, of uh, a local gay men's course. And I was on there for about a year and then I dropped off and he stayed. Uh, we hadn't seen each other for about a year and a half. Uh, my other best friend is a, a physician who's like me, came out late in life. He and the fellow he was seeing at the time called me on a Saturday night at 1030 and said, 
we're going to the gay bar to have a drink. Why don't you meet us? And my initial response was, no, it's 10.30 on a Saturday night, and I'm in my jammies. I'm not coming out anywhere. And anyway, Sarah, I got to thinking about that, and it took about 10 minutes, and I thought, well, that's a heck of a lot better than sitting here in my jammies watching something stupid on television. So anyway, I got dressed and went. <clears throat> and 10 minutes or 15 minutes later, I'm sitting there with them, and we're just talking and visiting with other people. And uh, Devin walks in. And, you know, we hadn't seen each other for a year or so. And so we started talking. And uh, the next day we were texting. And uh, so that was on a Saturday, uh, Memorial Day weekend. And Memorial Day, we had our first date uh, on Monday. And that was very simple, just a walk across the footbridge to the other side of the river. And we had lunch and just talked and talked and talked. And then uh, uh, it went really well. Um, and so that's how we, that's, that's how we started. Um, and then our second date was actually church. I invited him to go to church with me. And nobody else that had ever been dating said yes, but he did. And I thought, wow, this is a good sign. <laughs> so, so, uh, uh, and that was 20 months ago, I guess. And here we are. So now what is uh, the plan for the future with you and Devin? Well, we're engaged. Uh, we have a wedding day of May 20th of this coming year. And uh, just going to move forward and live a good life together. So very exciting. Yeah, definitely. So now, um, something that we haven't mentioned yet is the fact that you have written a book, um, a little bit about, you know, your experiences and your sexuality. So can you share kind of like why you decided to do that and what that process has been like? Uh, sure. Uh, thanks for asking about that. The title of the book is gay and gray, uh, because I am gay and gray. Uh, so gay and gray my journey to the rainbow. Uh, it's, it's kind of a memoir, kind of a commentary on the current state of culture and politics uh, in the U.S. and to some extent around the world. Um, and I wrote it for a couple of reasons. Um, the first is I feel like, in fact, I know there are a lot of guys like me uh, but they're still closeted. They don't know how to deal with it and they're miserable. And so I wrote it as a way to encourage them. Uh, and I've gotten some really good feedback from men around the country saying, you know, I, I read your book twice now and I finally decided I need to do something. So that's, that's been a plus. Um, the second reason, uh, that I wrote it was, it was cathartic to write it, to just get it out there and, um, and, and organize my thoughts. And I do that much better when I'm working with pen and paper. Uh, so that was important to me. And then uh, the final reason it was it kind of marked a no turning back point for me. You know, once you memorialize something in writing and put it up for the public, uh, there's no going back. It's out there. And I, I didn't really feel pressure to rescind my decision to come out, but, uh, I thought this is, this is my announcement to 
to the world that this is who I am and I'm okay with it and you need to be too. So. And has the book kind of like traversed in your circle in like the real world, like, you know, coworkers, family, friends that you've had comments back from them as well? You know, as I said before, I work with a lot of real conservative people <laughs> and, uh, uh, I've given a lot of I've given a lot of author copies away. Uh, there are only a handful of the twenty five officers that work for me that have accepted a copy of the book. They don't want to read it, um, which might speak to their own uh, struggles with their <laughs> sexuality. I don't know. I don't really even want to bring that up with them. Um, uh, the folks that I, that, that have the local folks, friends and family, uh, have been very encouraging about the book. So, uh, but others, not so much. And that's okay. Right. I like how, you know, kind of through all of this, you're like, it's okay. It's, you know, it's okay that I, I work with these conservative people. Now, one of the things that I mentioned um, in introducing you is that you, before coming out, were also living as a conservative man. So what has your stance in terms of like political affiliation, how has that been affected by your ability to come out? Oh, good question. Uh I it's could a loaded have won. question. That's okay. <laughs> That's okay. I could have won an Oscar for my performance over the last, you know, over those 40 years as a conservative straight man. Uh, you know, I did what I had to do, uh, in my mind at least, to survive it. Uh, the church that I served in was very conservative. The seminary that I started at was very conservative. Uh, the uh, my circle of friends were all very conservative. Um, you know that that's who I thought I needed to present as, and uh, it wasn't me. I'm a very liberal Democrat. Uh, I'm. Uh, uh, really progressive in my theology and uh, uh, it's actually easier now uh, to be that uh, because it's, it comes naturally. Uh, nothing really changed other than the way I presented to others. And you mentioned at one point early on about like kind of like friendship with men and how you were were afraid that like, you know, you might slip up, people might like, no. Um, was that kind of the same thing in terms of like theology and how you were presenting as conservative? Yeah, uh, uh, a, a couple of examples of that. Uh, in my younger years, I, I rode motorcycles. And uh, later in life, I decided, well, you know, I'm going to start riding motorcycles again, and maybe I'll develop some friendships with some other men. And, uh, uh, you know, we could bond over our Harley Davidsons or something. And, uh, but that didn't work because I was still hiding me. Uh, a, a second good example, a really good example, is um, that I was in a I was in a Friday morning Bible study with fifteen other guys, and we did that for ten years. They still do it. And toward the end, when I was struggling with whether or not to come out, and was working through all of this, um, I really lashed out at them several times. Uh, on those Friday mornings because it seemed to me like every 
discussion we had, no matter what book we were reading, what scripture we were studying, somehow it always came back to sexual orientation and how awful it was to be gay and how the Bible uh, was clear and convincing that uh, it was a sin and you were damned to hell and all of that. And just as an example, one morning I just... I just slammed my book down on the table and said, what is wrong with you all? Why is the bellwether issue of conservative Christianity sexual orientation? Why is it not poverty or homeless children or, you know, the social justice system or the criminal justice system? Don't you all have anything better to talk about? And uh, the leader of this Bible study asked me to stay over that day and talk. And he says, uh, you might want to just tone down the rhetoric a little bit because you're starting to turn people off. And uh, I wasn't able to tone down the rhetoric. Three or four more weeks of that, and I just had to tell them who I was and what I was and they asked me not to come back ever. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's all right. I don't mind. So with that and, you know, kind of everything you've shared, you know, you kind of left some communities, but you found community. What is like the environment like where you live in terms of acceptance and inclusivity? Uh, that's a good question. I'm in Kentucky, which is a very red state uh, in terms of both politics and religion. I won't call it faith, but I'll call it religion. Uh, it's red except for primarily two pockets, uh, which are urban areas, which are typically more liberal. Uh, I'm in Louisville, and Louisville's pretty liberal. Uh, so the environment here for LGBTQ people is pretty comfortable. Uh, it could be a lot better, uh, but we have not we have not had the kind of attacks, physical attacks on trans people. But you know, we have it, they're isolated. We don't have the widespread issues that some cities deal with. Uh, so it's comfortable. Uh, the community's fairly small, uh, but uh, also very close. So I have developed some wonderful friendships. Um, I'm not a big bar fly, but I love to be in a place where uh, people are just open about who they are and it doesn't matter if you come in dressed, you know, in your car hearts and you look like, you know, a really, a really you know, an ultra straight guy, but you're gay. Uh, or if you come in in drag, you know, it, everybody just loves everybody. And that's that's a really good environment for me. Yes. Now, because you just mentioned that, has your fashion sense changed since coming out? <laughs> You're stereotyping, Sarah. <laughs> well, no, you were just stereotyping. So, well, okay. Well, that's fair. Uh, yeah. There's yeah. Uh, actually, there's three gay genes that I say that I. I didn't get, I didn't get the dancing gene. I didn't get the dressing gene or the decorating gene. Uh, and so I have, <laughs> I have help in the areas, in those areas from others. Uh, but yeah, it has, it, <clears throat> you know, I joke about that, but it's changed a little bit because I was always, I always wore muted clothing, uh, you know, just because it was consistent with my, other conservative presentation. Uh, 
all of my socks were black or brown. And, you know, it was really, it was crazy uh, the way that I dressed. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of fun socks and colorful shirts and, you know, and all of that now. And so uh, uh, I don't know if it's changed. Well, yeah, I guess it has changed. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not real flamboyant in my dress, but uh, probably more fashionable than I was. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you, you answering that question there. Okay. Um, and I, I also want to go back to the motorcycle thing. Are uh, you still riding a motorcycle? No, no. Uh, you know, I, I really loved getting out in the country and riding. Uh, it was just a way to clear my head and, you know, when you're on that bike, you've got to really focus on what you're doing. Um, and so you, you kind of have to put everything else out of your head. Um, some cities have gay motorcycle clubs. We do not have one here. Um, but I, I quit because I, I got really afraid with all the distracted drivers. And, you know, if you're sitting at a, if you're sitting at a stoplight, you know, and the person that's coming up behind you is playing on their phone and they hit you in a car, you're going to survive that. If they hit the back of your motorcycle, you're probably going to end up hospitalized for a few weeks. So I just, and I see, I see that all the time. And so I got afraid of riding, uh, and I just, so I sold the bike, moved on. Right. Now, would you be willing to share a little bit about what it is like to be a police chief? Uh, yes, uh, I can do that. It's, uh, it can be a lot of bureaucracy. For me, it's not. I've been fortunate enough to work for two really good mayors and, uh, so the bureaucracy isn't awful. Political influence isn't awful like it is in some places. Uh, they trust me and have trusted me and allowed me to run the show. Uh, there's a lot of paperwork, as you might imagine, for, for the chief. A lot of meetings, a lot of phone calls and emails. Uh, frequently, people who feel like we haven't done well, they feel like we haven't done what they wanted us to do, uh, which isn't always consistent with the law or good practice. So, uh, uh, it's, uh, it, it can be, it can be invigorating though. Uh, you know, some days I'm able to get out and, uh, do things with the folks that work for me and watch them and encourage them or, you know, occasionally, rarely, but occasionally. Uh, correct something that they're doing, but but that's not the bulk of my my day. Most of my day is paperwork and meetings. And how did you end up getting to be a police chief after originally studying in a seminary? Well, I started out as a police officer and uh, did that for several years and then uh, left the police department, went into private business. I had, I had four small businesses uh, that I uh, owned and operated and ultimately sold. <clears throat> um, my seminary work, my calling to ministry was later in life. Uh, I had, I had always felt that. Um, in fact, at one point in my very, much younger life, I went, and I was raised Protestant, uh, but I went and talked to a priest about becoming a priest because I thought that's a really good place for somebody who doesn't have an interest in women to hide and not have to explain that they don't have an interest in women. Um, so anyway, that, that didn't work out, fortunately. Uh, but, uh, I didn't, I didn't start seminary until I was in my mid forties and, um, it was just something that kind of nagged at me all of my life. Uh, and so I did it, didn't have any, um, clear goal 
tools for what that was going to look like. Um, ultimately got a PhD, didn't have any clear goals for what that was going to look like. Um, it was just a personal goal. Um, uh, but uh, I, I had mentioned that I had four businesses. When I sold the last of those, I went and got my police certification back, uh, which turned out not to be very difficult. And I went to a small department uh, and was there for about a year and the department was struggling. Uh, the mayor asked the then chief to find an opportunity that suited him better <coughs> and, um, and named me the acting chief for about a year. And then uh, things were going pretty well during that first year. And so he asked me if I would be the chief. And so I've been the chief for 15 years. Um, I'm kind of an outlier among police chiefs, um, uh, Sarah, because uh, <clears throat> I am liberal. I'm anti-gun, which is, that's like the kiss of death around police officers if you say you're anti-gun, but I'm anti-gun. I uh, wouldn't own guns if I weren't a police officer. Uh, <clears throat> I, you know, the, the the expression think outside the box has been overused, but that's what I've been allowed to do. Um, I think uh, in most organizations, especially the police department, which is generally paramilitary, um, they do things the way they do them because they've always done them that way and nobody remembers why. Uh, but that's not me. And so I have always looked for alternatives to the status quo in how we secure funding, how we hire people, how we promote people, how we deal with the community and all that sort of thing. And I think that comes from the, my experience in business. And as I said, I've worked for some two good mayors. They've given me a free hand uh, generally as long as I'm within budget to do what, what, what I felt like needed to be done. And, uh, so we've had a lot of, a lot of success. Um, I, you know, as a police chief, uh, as, as I did in private business, I only hire people who are smarter than me. Uh, that's the criteria and the, they don't have to be smarter than me in everything, but they've got to be smarter than me in something or I don't need them. Uh, and so I've surrounded myself with very, very intelligent people, uh, free thinkers, self-initiators. And that's been, that's been key to the success of the department. Uh, now would you, be willing to share a little bit about the fact that you're anti-gun and are in the police force? Uh, yeah, I can talk about that. Uh, it's really just that simple. I am just, some days I just feel overwhelmed with the amount of violence that's going on in this country. As of yesterday, and today is we're doing this on November 30th, as of yesterday, there were 621 mass shootings in the United States. 621, as defined by four victims or more. Uh, that doesn't count all of the individual violence. Almost all of it is guns. And I hate it. And every day we have some joker who will call to report that his gun was stolen or her i don't mean to blame this all on men but it's mostly men uh from his or her unlocked vehicle and i think how stupid is that and i tell these people you know they'll call and say you know have you found my gun and i'll say no and we will not probably find your gun Unless and until it's used in the commission of another crime. 
because the people that stole your gun are nefarious. They are not, <laughs> they are not nice people. And so they're either going to hurt somebody or rob somebody or something, and then we'll find your gun. How do you feel about that? And it's usually just dead silence on the other end of the phone. But I, I have no qualms about telling people in a subtle sort of way how stupid they are in the way they either in the way they don't secure their guns. There are 450 million guns in this country with a population of 320 million people. What in the world are all these folks afraid of? I, I just don't get it. I don't get it. I can't live my life that way, and I don't know why they do. Yes, those are definitely some like jarring statistics if they if like you didn't already know them. Now, before I start to wrap things up, is there anything else that you would like to share with the listeners today? Yeah, just just one thing for anybody who's who's listening and is struggling with coming out and have, and facing, you know, facing opposition, facing the naysayers. You know, I finally figured out. Well, a couple of things. I figured out one is that I can't fix anybody else. I can only fix me. And that's enough. Uh, everybody else has to has to fix themselves. The other thing that really is important to me, Sarah, because my my faith background is important to me. You know, I was, you know, I prayed for forty years for God to fix me, because I thought something was wrong with me, and. I knew it didn't work that way, you know, intellectually, academically. I, I knew it didn't work that way. And yet I was desperate to be healed of this affliction of being gay. And the God who raised the dead and healed the blind and made the, <laughs> the deaf to hear could have fixed me had God wanted to fix me, but God never did. And so I finally came to the conclusion that God didn't fix me because there wasn't anything wrong with me. A lot of LGBTQ people have been so hurt by the church and think they really think that, that God doesn't love them. They think they have no place in in, uh, in the church, and that's just not so. And, you know, I had some really deep theological discussions sitting in the gay bar drinking a gin and tonic with somebody who's asking a lot of questions about faith and spirituality and scripture. So <clears throat> I would want people to know, and this is part of what I consider my ministry, what's left of it, is that there's nothing wrong with you. You were not a mistake. And, uh, you know, you're loved. That's, that's, the, that's my final word. Nobody can convince me otherwise. Yes, and it's such a good message for everyone to hear whether or not um, they're going through something like you went through as well. Now, at the end of all my episodes, I do ask all of my guests a random question. Does okay. it have to do with anything we've talked about? So my question okay. for you is, what part of history do you find most interesting? Uh, the period of history that encompasses my life. I look back on it, and Devin and I were talking about this last night. Uh, I have lived through the civil rights movement. I have lived through John Kennedy's assassination, Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination, Robert Kennedy's assassination, the Vietnam War protest. I've lived through so much. And I'm making myself sound really old. Darn it. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, but 
it's been a fascinating life. Some of it's scary, but this is part of it's because technology is advancing so rapidly. You know, Robert Kennedy could have been shot 200 years ago and it had been three days before anybody knew it. But today, you know, we've got this 24-hour news thing. It's, it's fascinating. It's discouraging, too, in some ways, but it's a fascinating time to be alive. Uh, despite what you think of the Supreme Court and whether it's legitimate or it's not, what you think of Congress and whether they are effective or not, uh, it's interesting to watch. And I just love it. So, and, 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 more importantly, my fiance loves him. He is a student 24-7 of something. And uh, that's another thing, Sarah. I knew I couldn't be with a dummy. That was my only criteria for finding someone. I had to be with somebody that we that could talk with me about current events and arts and all that kind of stuff. And so uh, we spent we spent two hours last night talking about president of the local seminary and why he's such a staunch conservative and a hater of people. <laughs> but it's interesting. It's an interesting time to be alive. And I have my iPhone. I wouldn't want to go back to a time when I didn't have an iPhone. <laughs> so... All right, that brings this episode to a close. If you would like to check out Grady's book, um, of course, his website will be in the description along with some social media links. So feel free to go follow those pages and, and check his website out. And of course, if you'd like to connect with the podcast, our website is in the description as well. That brings you to all of our social media, including LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. So if you'd like to go follow those pages, I always appreciate that. And if you would like to support the podcast monetarily, a link to do that is in the description. And if you would like to be a guest on the podcast, my email is in the description as well. So I always look forward to hearing from new people. So thank you so much, Grady, for spending time with me today and to my listeners for taking the time out of your day to hear a new story. Until next time. Bye. Bye, everyone.